0: Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. I um, hope you had a good night's rest. I did. hope you had a good breakfast. I also did. And I'm glad you came back this morning. I want to begin in uh, the book of Acts. I said something last night about God designing and destining a man for a purpose. And I thought it would be helpful for you to just see it. This is Acts chapter 13. Because a fruitful marriage, a maximized marriage, begins with a huge dose of Perspective. You're not going to learn this in the culture around us. You're going to learn this from God's Word. Many of us, even though we might have grown up in a Christian home or a Christian church, may not have seen modeled some of the realities that are so essential for a life-giving marriage. And marriage is God's idea And uh, it has purpose, and that purpose is to accomplish work that he has given us to do and to enjoy satisfaction at a level that otherwise we could not. And so look with me in Acts chapter 13 and uh, verse 36 as it relates to David, and I'm going to argue that it's not unique to David, It's true of all of us. You'll see it also in chapter 12, verse 25, in reference to Barnabas and Saul. But look at Acts 13, 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. Do you see that? Fell asleep, he passed away, and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. So this this passage is not designed to teach what I want you to see in it. But it is important to recognize that David served a purpose, a God ordained purpose in his generation. And gentlemen, you may not recognize it, but you are uniquely crafted and created, gifted and designed for your purpose, a purpose that God has for your life. Isaiah 43 7, God made you, formed you for his glory. That means you are meant to bear witness to him, who he is, and accomplish the work. That he's designed you to do. Every man has a purpose in his generation. And you see that again in Acts chapter 12 verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. That's the word we get deacon from, diakonon. Their service, what they were commissioned to do, they did. You are commissioned by God as a man to accomplish something in your generation for his glory. And if you're married, critical to that mission fulfillment is a helper, a partner, a practical teammate who makes up what you essentially lack. I've been called to minister the word of God. I cannot accomplish that ministry absent the partner that God has given to me because he said, I need one. And beyond that, he has created a custom-made solution that is meant to not only provide me partnership, but companionship. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24, one other just general observation by way of planting the flag of perspective. Because last night I wanted to argue biblically that as a husband, you're to prioritize your spouse. As precious. You're to promote her apart from God as your number one priority. And I argued last night because of what God said in a world without her. It's not good. Because there is no one else in the world like her. It's the naming of the animals. Because of the way God made her. Custom made her. Precious. uh, The university was just gifted five highly prized violins. One of those is worth $3.2 million. It's up for sale now. The reason it's so valuable is not only what it is made out of and the tone that it creates, but by uh, the craftsman who made it and the rarity of it. Your wife is a -a one-of-a-kind creation, custom-built by God. Your wife is different than you are, and she should be. She is a complement to you. First of all, she's female, you're male. That's a big difference. Even though our culture wants to blur the differences, God wants those differences to be distinct because they're meant to be distinct. Women are not supposed to be men, and men are not supposed to be women. God made male and female. In his image, he made them male and female. There are two, and they are unique, and they are supposed to be. But those differences, and we'll talk about this later today, create challenges. Because men and women don't think the same. Can you say amen to that? Well, you probably ought not say amen to that. <laughs> it won't help you, <laughs> even if you agree with me. So you have to... Recognize, in part, that those differences are custom-designed differences. They are purpose differences. That the fashioning of God and the difference of your spouse is designed by God to complete you in a way that optimizes your potential. Prioritize her as precious because of the way God made her and because of the way God presented her. He unveiled her. He proudly presented her because of the way man joyfully received her. Now we're talking. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I want her to be identified with me. I want her to have a derivative of my name. So prioritize her as precious. Treat her as a priority. Finally, because of who she alone is for you and for what she alone is can do for you. One of a kind. If you took anything away from last night, take that away. Because if you understand rarity, value at that level, you will prioritize your time in a different way. Which leads me to Deuteronomy 24, which is where I invited you to go. And here's a law you may not know. Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor shall he be charged with any duty, and that word duty is any business, he shall be free at home one year. Why? Why? so that he can give happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. Now, you may not know the original language, I do. Let me tell you what that commandment means. You're to spend a year as a husband training your wife in the art of pleasing you. Somebody said amen. Somebody's got a, a happy husband right there. No, that is not what it says. What it says is there is a year to be dedicated to the development of the husbandly art of pleasing and loving his wife. Why would that be important? Because it's a priority. Establishing the priority, no military duty which would risk his life or require him to be away, no civic or domestic duty that would compete with this priority. A pattern is to be established, and that is in the very first year, and I tell couples when I coach them, primarily, the first year matters. You need to get entrenched habits, healthy life rhythms, perspectives and priorities That are going to serve you the rest of your life. You're building something. And the height and the beauty of that something will be defined by how good the foundation is. And biblically by law that first year mattered. And it was to be a focused high priority pursuit. To the end that a husband learned how to love and care for his wife. Not because she's needy. But because she's valuable. Once upon a time, a beautiful, independent, self-assured princess happened upon a frog in a pool or a pond. The frog said to the princess, I was once a handsome prince until an evil witch put a spell on me. One kiss from you and I will turn back into a prince. And then we can marry. We can move into the castle with my mom and you can prepare my meals, clean my clothes, bear my children and forever feel happy doing so. That night, while the princess dined on frog legs, she laughed to herself and thought, I don't think so. I wrote above that illustration, you'll never be a prince until you act like one. And I do believe that you need to remember who you're married to. I forget that. If my wife would call me while I'm teaching this morning, up on the phone would come the words Princess Karen. The word princess is meant to remind me of who I'm talking to. That's a priority to calibrate into your mind and thinking if you're going to have a maximized marriage. Your wife is precious. She is priceless. She's a gift. She's invaluable. Prize her that way. Can the husband say amen? Amen. I know the wives might want to, but... (laughs) All right, so let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Because as we argued yesterday, this is a two-part solution. Part one, the right person. Part two, the right place. For this cause recognizes that the cause of solving the aloneness problem of Genesis chapter 2 is not resolved until there is a leave cleave and unite relationship we call it the covenant of marriage and it is a covenant just a word about covenant versus contracts the world functions as if marriages are contracts contracts are written to limit liability they're voided by mutual consent contracts are written Because of the principle of potential distrust. We have to have a contract to protect each of the parties in the contractual relationship. Covenants are not based on distrust. They are based on trust. Covenants require and include not limited liability, but unlimited responsibility. Covenants cannot be broken If new circumstances arrive, there are vows made at a wedding ceremony. That's a covenant. There are folks sitting on each side, those are witnesses. There's a reception after the wedding ceremony. That's the common meal that seals and validates the covenant. The reception is the common meal because there's a covenant. Not a contract. That's why Malachi says she's the covenant companion of your youth. It is a covenant. It's not just an agreement that is enforced by law. It's a commitment enforced by love. Verse 24. For this cause, a man shall three Hebrew verbs. We're going to talk about them in the time that we have today, and help to help you build priorities into your home this is the priority pill you have to be focused on the right things the first thing you need to be focused on revolves around the word leaving leaving the hebrew word is azab. It means to depart or to forsake the arabic root means to be distant leave father and mother how far far enough Far enough, not just to depart physically, this word involved to depart far enough to leave their influence. Housed in marriage is the principle of leaving. You're leaving two things when you leave parental influence. You're leaving, number one, what are parents to children? They're authorities. You're leaving the authority, a trusted authority, to establish, listen to this, a new trusted authority. Marriage involves coming out from under the leadership authority of parents to establish a new leadership authority. Leaving a trusted past authority to establish a trusted new authority. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So the man is coming out from from under the parental authority underneath the direct authority of Christ and all Christ-ordained authorities. The husband directly answers to Christ and to the authorities Christ has instituted. Government would be an authority instituted by God. If the blue lights go on on Highway 5, you need to pull over. That's an authority. If you're... Under military command, there's an ordained authority by the government that you need to obey. If you're in a church, you have elders. They have been appointed by God. That's why it says, Hebrews chapter 13, if they're biblical elders, they've been appointed, Acts 20, 28, by the Holy Spirit to watch over the flock of God because they care for your soul. Obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your soul. They don't want to run your life. They want to shepherd your soul. They have authority. That's Christ-ordained authority. Now, surely authorities can be abusive. But it doesn't mean that authority should be dishonored because it might be abusive. Husbands have an authority, Christ. He is not an abusive authority. Christ needs to be honored and submitted to. A husband needs to be Christ-connected. He needs to be prayer-committed and oriented because he's under the leadership and word-focused so that he can follow the leadership of Christ in his life. For the man, the authority is Christ. The head of the woman is man, 1 Corinthians 11. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5, 23. Now listen, I know this is not politically correct. It just happens to be biblically correct. Matter of fact, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, there's only two verses in the book of Colossians to husbands and wives. Only two. One to the wife, one verb. One verse to the husband, two verbs. If you lived in Colossae or Asia Minor at that time, you would only get two instructions as a husband, two verses, one for the wife, one for the husband, which I boil that down to say, if you don't get anything else, get this. Because there's a lot you could say about marriage to husbands and wives. Paul says only one thing to the wife, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. It is fitting in the Lord. Fitting is tantamount to saying that's the way God designed it. Submit means to arrange yourself, tasso, the word tasso is arrange, hoopo under. Voluntarily arrange yourself under the leadership of someone else. It is not the involuntary act of an equal. It is the voluntary act of an equal. It is, I choose to. I don't have to. I get it because God said it. I want to because that's how he ordained it. Your husband may not be smarter than you. He may not be better equipped than you, but he is God's appointed leader for you. When you leave your father and mother, God's appointed authorities prior to marriage, you're forsaking their authority. You're not seeking their approval. You honor father and mother. You do not obey father and mother. And there is a difference. Honor means you treat them with weight and respect and value, but that does not equal obedience. You've left that. The word leave means to depart. That's why I say, how far do you go? Out of the tent? Out of the compound? Because in ancient cultures, they traveled nomadically together. The tent across the campus? Another city? Another country? You go as far as you have to go because this is a non-negotiable. Husbands, love your wife and don't ever be harsh with her. That's what Paul said to the husbands and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to establish the fact that biblically there is new headship, leadership, and direction. There is a new authority, a God-ordained authority, and if there's not that's why Ephesians chapter five says in the section that speaks to the wife, submit yourselves to your husbands, as as the church submits to Christ in all things. It says to do that because you're to honor and lift up your husband as your leader. That's a God appointment, and when you recognize that, you enter into the first component of a biblical marriage. A maximized marriage. You're leaving father and mother. And you're establishing a new leader. The man, the authority is Christ. For the woman, the authority is the man. For what purpose? To give direction and leadership. And by the way, gentlemen, I'll say this for your benefit. Because I think we misunderstand. Colossians 3.18 says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It does not say, husbands, make your wives submit to you. You're never instructed to make her follow. You're instructed to love her, which will help her follow. The choice to follow is her choice. I mean, Jesus Christ submitted his will to the will of the Father, not because he was lesser, but because of function in his role to fulfill for the glory of God, his purpose on the earth. It is not a discredit to you to voluntarily follow. It is an honor to him and to your husband, which is why Ephesians 5 says, respect him. A woman's role that she's to work at is to honor and lift up the husband God has given her to. You are a gift to a man God has created for a providential purpose. Honor him. Even if he doesn't behave honorably, 1 Peter chapter 3 says, win him without a word by the respectful conduct you display in light of who he is because of God's declaration about him. Can you say amen to that? You leave authority. There's something else I think you need to... And and husbands, I just want to encourage you, when you're Christ-connected, when you're prayer-oriented, when you're biblically directed. Your wife will find a lot more uh, compelling and attractive to follow you. She has no trouble trusting somebody who is trusting his leader. So if you ever want to say, how can I help my wife submit? You submit. How can I help my wife follow voluntarily? Love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the key to leadership. But there's another category in this leaving that I want to touch on. There's a second aspect to leaving, and I want to argue that leaving not only involves leaving the authority of a, a trusted authority for a new trusted authority, but also leaving a past source of affirmation and approval for a new source of affirmation and approval. You see, children do something naturally. They chase a parent's smile. They may not get it. They may disconnect from the pursuit of it because they can't secure it, but they want it. They're built that way. I mean, my daughter's 30 years old. She's a stylist, and if she does a cool-looking haircut, I'll get a picture. The purpose of that picture is not look at this gal's cool hair, it's look what I just did. That never goes away. But there's a part of that that needs to change, and that is the seeking and the chasing of a parent's smile needs needs to be transferred to the spouse. Emotional affirmation, emotional approval, chasing someone's smile needs to be transferred from a parent seeking of their approval, affirmation and support for that of a spouse. Here's an interesting fact, 60% of today's men are still chasing the approval of their father whether that father is alive or dead. Business decisions, life decisions often made not because of what's best for your family but what is perceived to be validating in the eyes of your father. Most women Talk multiple times a week to their mother. It's, it's good to talk to your mother. My mother called me today just to find out how the fires were in relation to where I am. By the way, we should pray for that. That is catastrophic. You get it. and We need to be asking the Lord for help. A lot of people are in harm's way, and my mother was worried about whether I was. It's good to talk to your mother. But it's not good to talk to your mother instead of your husband. Studies show that women stay unnecessarily bonded and dependent emotionally on their mother. What's supposed to happen in a marriage to maximize a marriage is you leave that dependence. You establish a new trusted authority and a new dependent approval affirmation relationship. Here's why. You'll bleed the passion out of your heart if you get from somewhere else what is to be gotten in your home. Leave that. Some of the clues are changes of behavior when your parents are around, the frequency of calls to parents or significant persons. Some of the tests that you can run on your own status of heart. What is the determining factor in where you go for the holidays? What's your spouse? Is it what your spouse wants to do or what you know your parents expect you to do? We all understand that. I'm a parent. I want my children to come at the holidays. But they need to do what is best for their home, not mine. My daughter called me early on in marriage Hey, Dad, my battery's dead. What should I do? I said, aren't you married? (laughs) Call John. That's a shift that's essential. Foundationally in marriage, you're building a new support system. You're establishing a a new leadership culture. What are parents? They're affirmers and they're approvers. That approval and that affirmation is to be transferred to someone else. That's essential to marriage. Your husband needs to be needed. Your husband needs to be supported. Priority number one, take time to leave. Let me tell you why I use the words take time. Because all of these things take time. Priority number one takes focus time. If you're leaving, you need direction time to sit together as a husband and wife to talk about where we're going and how we're going to get there. Leadership and partnership takes time. Priority number one, leaving, involves focus time, not just for direction time, but for affirmation time. Edifying and encouraging, listening, learning, talking takes time, relational time. Thirdly, it takes affection time because if you're leaving the pursuit of a smile and the affection attached to it, you need to establish that in your home where there is time to be together to affirm, time to be together to express affection Loving time, caring time, investing time. Take time. That's what leaving requires because leadership requires time. Fellowship requires time. Relationships require time, a certain kind of time. Priority number one, leaving. Priority number two, cleaving. And shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Now, I said this last night. Who uses cleave? Unless you're at a meat shop where butchers cleave, cut things apart. The meat cleaver. This is actually the direct opposite of the concept of cutting something apart. The Hebrew word debak means to cling. It means to cleave. Some of your Bibles will say hold fast. It means to keep close. Used in modern Hebrew in the sense of stick to, adhere to. It yields the noun form for the word glue. If you want to literally apply this term at a marriage ceremony, there would be the human crazy glue installment where you Siamese two people together because that's literally what it means. A husband is to be glued to his wife. He's to be connected to her in an unbreakable bond. This is a figurative word, obviously. We don't glue people at a wedding ceremony. We don't Siamese them, but there is a cleaving that occurs, and that cleaving is a connecting in absolute loyalty and devotion. Turn with me to Joshua chapter 23. I want to show you the figurative application of this word. This is an eminently relational word. It is God's favorite word with his people. He says on multiple occasions in the book of Deuteronomy to his people, cleave to me. Deuteronomy 10.20, Deuteronomy 11.22, Deuteronomy 13.4, Deuteronomy 30.20. God talking to his people, it would sound like this. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him only, and to him you shall cleave, cling. I invited you to Joshua chapter 23 because it's my favorite figurative taste of the implication of this principle in Joshua chapter 23. It is Joshua's last speech to God's people. He's, this is where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's talking about them to them about how they can enjoy the blessing of God in the land of blessing, the promised land. And he's giving them some final instructions. These are echoes of Moses' instructions, which makes sense because Moses was Joshua's predecessor. So Joshua's telling God's people, keep this priority. Now listen to this. Verse 6, Joshua 23. We're going to run into our word cleave. It's going to give you a flavor of its meaning, figuratively and relationally. Verse 6, be very firm then, says Joshua to Israel, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. That is the secret to success. Don't let the law of God depart from your mouth, but observe to do all that is written therein. This is the words Joshua heard early on, that you may enjoy good success. Verse 7, resolve singularity of focus in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you. Or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8 But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. All right, where is the word cleave? Verse 8. Translated cling in my Bible. Your Bible may say hold fast. That's a fair translation. So verse 8 says, you are to cling. Remember, it's a relational word. God's a relational person having relationship with his people. I want you to cling to me. I want you to cleave to me relationally. What's the first word in verse 8? But. But is an adversative conjunction. It means, on the other hand, God is saying, I want you to cling to me, as opposed to what just was spoken about in verse 7. Verse 7 is the opposite of clinging to me. What is verse 7 about? Idols. Verse 7 is about other gods. Verse 7 is God saying, I don't want you to have any rival to me. The word cling, the word cleave, the word hold fast, the word glue figuratively means, listen to this, to establish an unrivaled and exclusive relationship. I want you to cling to me as opposed to other gods who compete with me. Now, the reason I like this passage is because the depth to which he says, I want you to be loyal to me. Notice what he says, verse 7. I don't want you to mention the name of competitors to me. I mean, I I get it if he says, I don't want you to swear by them, serve them, or bow down to them. What he says is, I don't want you to even mention their names. Oh, and beyond that, I don't want you to associate with anybody who does mention their names. I want you to have nothing to do with anything that competes with me. You're to establish an exclusive, unrivaled relationship with me. Don't associate with these nations that have these rivals to me. Don't mention the name of my rivals. Don't swear by my rivals. Don't bow down to my rivals. Don't serve my rivals. You cling to me. Do you feel it? That's cleave. When you get married, you're establishing an exclusive unrivaled relationship which has no competitors when you leave father and mother you establish trust and when you cleave you establish trust this is the security pill this and we're going to talk more extensively about this in the next hour how to protect your home from predators but there are rivals to marriage And marriage is meant to be a relationship that is exclusive, one of a kind, with no rivals. What kind of rivals can a marriage have? What kind of competitors can a wife have? Well, you can have a career rival. There's a ton of divorces every year because somebody marries their business or their career. Charles Stanley, who's still preaching in Atlanta, Georgia, on television, when his wife divorced him, First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, she she divorced him. She said he has a mistress. Do you know who she identified the mistress as? The ministry. My wife, I tell my seminary students this, your first ministry is at home. You fail at home, you fail. I don't care how big your church is. I don't care how many books you write, how famous you become. Your first ministry trust is your spouse. Because your first priority is your wife. You're making a covenant vow. You're promising to say you have no rival. When I'm making you a promise today, I'm promising to leave and lead. And I'm promising that you will be an unrivaled exclusive relationship in my life. No career will rival you. No ministry will rival you. No hobby will rival you. You know, a gal in Alabama where I serve shot her husband because she was hacked at him because she was always hunting and leaving her at home. I would say she was feeling like she had a competitor. Hobby rivals. Football, golf, hunting, fishing, stuff. This is more directed to the wife, but there can be children rivals. Listen, the centerpiece of your home is not your children. I love my children, but the core of my home is my relationship with my spouse. A lot of times there's no husband and wife time because of so much investment in children time you got to get them to practice, to do school, etc. The priority in the home is the spouse. Leaving means, and cleaving means, I'm establishing an unrivaled relationship, which includes children. The first kiss in my house, or the first hug, is not to a spouse, or to, to a child, but to my spouse. Listen, it's true. But there will be times when children require everything. Newborns, I've, one of my best friends at Masters, a comrade, just had twins. Their life revolves around those little boys, as it should. But it can't stay that way. A child does not belong as the centerpiece. It's not good for them, trust me. They need to see what a marriage is. And if you make them the center of the home, they will not see what a marriage is. They may be in your space, husband and wife space, for a little while because they're in a bassinet or because they have a need, but they don't need to be in your space. They'll become a rival for your time. They cannot be. Marriage is an exclusive, unrivaled relationship, and that includes your children. I cannot tell you how many times I've coached husbands and wives where the husband says, I'm second at my house. I may be third or fourth. That's not a biblical, life-giving marriage. Family rivals, I alluded to that when I talked about leaving. Who gets the priority when folks visit? Don't forget the priority of your spouse. Friend rivals. And then here's the most obvious one. Other men or other women who will compete with your spouse. 57% of men are going to commit adultery in our country, 54% of women. It is a massive issue. And I'm just talking about the physical transaction, let alone the infidelity and the rivals created by the Internet and all of its images. When you get married, you're saying to a woman, if you're a husband, you have no rival. Some of you are old enough to remember a popular song called I'm a girl watcher, I'm a girl watcher, I'm just watching girls go by. Anybody remember that besides me? Yep. Guess what happens to that when you get married? That dies. I had a woman sitting in my office with her husband, the big issue. He's always looking at other women. His response, I can read the menu as long as I don't order. Now, I've rarely ever wanted to hit anybody in my office, (laughs) but I wanted to. I wanted to say, you're an idiot. What I did say was, so tell me, how do you think that makes her feel? Do you think that makes her feel like she's one of a kind? Look, I know it's culturally acceptable, and in the South, you have the redneck turn where it's obvious, You've got guys that are smooth. You even have commercials now where gals are watching. So it's not just a one-way transaction. Let me tell you what marriage is. It's my commitment to my wife to say, I don't care what she looks like, what she has on, what she doesn't have on, what she's driving. I'm not looking. You are my wife and you have no rival. You can be flipping the remote on television and you just stop when you shouldn't stop because there's someone attractive on the screen. Can't do it. Pornography is destructive fundamentally because it creates a rival, let alone the immorality involved. It's the rival that's created. The destruction To a woman's heart when she believes she's not enough. When in fact the promise was made, whether it was known or not, that I am establishing with you an unrivaled relationship that has no competitor. Whether I'm watching TV, whether I'm walking through the mall, whether I'm driving a car, My focus is for you and only you. And gentlemen and ladies, you have to fight for that in our culture. The women who get in trouble that I'm familiar with usually get in trouble on the Internet because they'll start chatting with somebody that is just interested in what they're interested in and their husband's not so interested in it. So before you know it, a connection is made, a bond is formed, and a transaction occurs. A heart gets stolen away. Cleaving is essential to intimate and fulfilling relationship because it fosters security. And security is essential for trust. And trust is essential for intimacy. It tells your partner they have no rival. It says they can entrust themselves fully to you because they know that they are without competition. A secure relationship is a trusting relationship, and a trusting relationship is a freeing relationship. Here's my exhortation. You want to maximize and have a life-giving marriage? Evaluate and eliminate all rivals to your relationship. Because you don't need just time for direction. You need time to communicate value. That means quality time. That means quantity time. It means I'll give you my best time, not my least time. Listen, you know how it goes. You get up early. You get cranking. Your day's engaged. You get home. If you have children, you've got that to deal with, and it's a joy. I get it. But by the time it's husband and wife time, there's nothing left so you don't spend the quality time you need to, exclusive one-on-one time, and that is necessary. There's some things you can't do in a group. Intimacy is one of those things. Relational intimacy. Quantity time. That's enough time that says, you know what, you matter to me. Everything else does not matter more than you do to me. The measuring stick in a relationship is time. That's the collateral that you have to measure and pursue in terms of communicating in the relational checkbook of life, the commodity most valued is time. Because time says, I'm important. Time says, I'm valuable. The best time says, you're the most valuable. So priority two. It's not just leave time, it's value time, the cleave principle. Time matters. It's a foundation for a biblical marriage. Let me uh, push the pause button there. And we'll spend our next hour when we take... What time, John, were we supposed to end? I'm not really paying attention to the schedule. That's just a good stopping point because we're going to transition. This is a good, good time? Okay, so let me, uh, let me just pause right there, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Um, but I want you to understand that marriage is God-ordained, and these are non-negotiable building blocks. It's like a three-legged stool. First one is leave. Second one is cleave. One is trusted authority for a new authority. Seeking approval, chasing someone's smile, that gets transferred. Cleaving is, I'm going to establish an exclusive, unrivaled relationship with you. And that's non-negotiable. Listen, if a wife is saying to me as a husband, if my wife is saying to me, I need you to not do that ministry thing, it's not because she's not committed to what I'm built for. It's because something more important is at stake. And that's our marriage. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect and review precepts inspired. Not just good ideas and not just another book we can read, but the book on the most important human relationship we will experience. Help us, Lord, to assess and evaluate. Who does make the decisions? Who does follow? Who does lead? What is the priority in our home? Are we doing this God's way so we can experience God's intention? Lord, give us eyes to see, humble hearts to receive. Help us to be helpful to each other. Lord, I want to say it again to you and for us all. The key to a successful marriage is not so much finding the right person. It is being the right person. So, Lord, let our focus be first toward ourselves. Not to the shortcomings of our spouse. Lord, it's to that end I ask it for us all. In Jesus' name, amen.